Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, I'm Rob Schneider. And I'm Kevin David Thomas. And this is Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Broadway Curtain. And make sure to join our Facebook page at Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends. And follow us on Instagram. Oh, we feel so young and hip at Broadway Curtain Podcast. Plus, you can always listen to all of our episodes, old and new, on the Broadway Podcast Network, iTunes, and Spotify. It takes a village to put on a Broadway show. And quite often, audiences only appreciate what they see in front of them in that moment, not even realizing there are tons of talented, skilled, brilliant artists working like crazy to make sure the show that they are seeing is of the utmost perfection. And today, we are lucky to be talking to three of those unseen geniuses, each a Broadway legend with decades upon decades of credits as wardrobe supervisor. Some of their shows include a chorus line, Wicked, Dreamgirls, Moulin Rouge, the 2003 revival of Gypsy, the 2011 revival of Follies, Tina, Shuffle Along, The Piano Lesson, to name just a few of the over 100 cumulative credits. Can you imagine over 100? Oh my God. (laughs) To tell us what it was like to work on these shows and with just about every legend of Broadway, we are so honored to have with us the incomparable Alice Gilbert, Rick Kelly, and Linda Lee. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. We are so honored and so excited to have you and to to take us to this backstage world. So, Alice, I am going to start with you, if that's okay. Alice, how did you first get into this business? Well, it started when I was 12 uh, in uh, the Playground Trailer Theater of Milwaukee, Wisconsin, which was a uh, a, a touring uh, company sponsored by the Recreation Department where the uh, teenage actors performed three, three shows a day in three different playgrounds five days a week, walking between them. Uh, and at the time I was doing it, it, it happened that they had a, of the grown-ups involved, there was the guy who drove the Jeep that pulled the trailer and, uh, and took care of the scenery. Otto the Clown, who did introductions and played uh, the accompaniment on a record, <laughs> which we recorded in the recording studio before we started performing. And as it happened, the director was a graduate student at Marquette, uh, who was also a guy. And when the costumes arrived, which they did in a big basket, they were just, uh, well, everybody should wear these. 
and there they go. There was nobody in, someone designed them, someone made them, but they just arrived. Mm. And as the, as the uh, doing it three times a day, five days a week, and people sharing the clothes, uh, things happened to the clothes. And I seemed to be the only one who knew how to thread a needle at that point. So I wound up being taking care of the clothes as well as performing and, you know, Peter Rabbit and the Ugly Duckling, a combined musical extravaganza. And um, a number of, you know, and I was a, I was that trailer theater for like three years and I kept doing it because nobody else did. And, you know, someone would step on the butterfly's wings and they'd have a big rip and there you would have to do something. So I continued doing it in um, throughout high school. I always dealt with costumes and, you know, as well as performing. And when I went to college uh, at the University of Denver, uh, I had assistantships in costumes because it was the olden days and girls just had assistantships in costumes. It was, you know, they were barely following Jean Rosenthal into lighting at that point. So that was the job I had. And, um, and I worked on many, many shows uh, in that period, including uh, a collaboration with uh, a company from New York that came out in the summer and so I was now starting to deal with their clothes and how those things were doing. And I, one of the magical things that I found out was the job is always the same. It's always the clothes, the designer, the costumes, and the actors. And the only thing that really changes is how much money you have to work with and how many people you have to help you. Yeah. Otherwise, it, 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 it stays to be the same job. And when I came to New York, I started off Broadway and uh, very quickly because it was a really unpopular job off Broadway. Uh, and it was, it, this was a long time ago and it was a period when Broadway was down and uh, off Broadway was rising up. And so I worked on a number of things uh, at a number of places. Uh, the theater Dolly, I did the, uh, I was the second wardrobe supervisor on Dames at Sea, which ran <laughs> at the theater Dolly, which is, is now on its third name after that. It was very prominent at the time. And I did many, many shows that were uh, off-Broadway. And of course, you know, off-Broadway, almost always you were a one-person deal. Yeah. You were the department, you were the head, you were the dresser, you were, you know, taking, doing the laundry. And, uh, and you usually had a day job, mm -hmm. and which happened until uh, I started at the public theater. And uh, because I had my first off-Broadway show happened to be uh, a show called Ballad First Firing Squad, which was a, re, uh, a remake of Matahari that David uh, Merrick had composed out of town. And Theone Aldridge was redesigning <laughs> what had been a concept from Irene Sheriff. And there you were at the Theater de Lee, uh, upstairs with nine and 12 actors, uh, trying to be what had been 50. Um, and it just kept going from there. As I did one, I did another, I did another. There were, there were some years where I did 15. 
uh, 15 shows because they kept opening and closing off Broadway. And uh, and I did have an office job in the day. What, what was your day job, Alice? Uh, I was the law librarian for the legal defense fund, the NAACP legal defense fund for uh, most of my off-Broadway career. And I didn't really leave them until a chorus line moved to Broadway. <laughs> Got it. Okay. okay. We'll put a pin in that one because I know we're going to want to come back to that. <laughs> and so now, Linda, how did you get your start in this wonderful career? Oh, boy. Um, a lot of things led to it. Um, arts was always in my family. You know, my brothers were musicians and actors, not on Broadway, but just local productions. So we always had art in our family. Um, I actually thought I was going to be a dancer. I started out with that mm -hmm. uh, at a very young age. Uh, and at some point, I realized that I didn't want to make the sacrifices that needed to be made for mm -hmm. that position. Mm -hmm. As much as I love it, and I love dancers, and I respect them so much, but I realized that that really wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. um, and at the same time, I started becoming interested in design. Uh, because when you're that young, it's very easy to just figure out the things that interest you. When I say that young, I'm like high school at this point. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I did have people in my family that were phenomenal designers and seamstresses. So I had that influence going on. Uh, in terms of formal training, not that much. I learned a lot on my own. I did go take some classes like at FIT and at the new school uh, to hone in what I already was learning. But I was pretty self-taught in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, and my family helped me a lot. I did have, who? what took me to Off-Broadway? Oh, because I was sewing on my own and had a business of my own with my sister, and we were just making clothes for people. It had nothing to do with costumes. Okay. Uh, then finally, we had a client that was in the business, a producer, and that asked us to make some clothes for a production. Mm -hmm. And it was nerve-wracking, and it was off-Broadway and really scary, but we did it and loved it at the same time. And Linda, what made it so scary? Uh, because I just wasn't familiar with dealing with actors on that level. <laughs> and directors, you know? It's like, oh my God, you know, this is a lot of people. And... Um, it was scary, but still interesting enough to want to pursue it. Mm. So it was an off-Broadway production, and it was, I absolutely loved it. What was the show? I mean, do you remember what the piece was? I'm trying to remember. It was down in the village, a very small production. It was down in the village. Um, it's totally it was an African-American production. I, I, I wish I could give you the name. It'll, it'll yeah, totally fine. To There's no off-Broadway shows, yeah. Yes. And, uh, then and one off-Broadway show kind of led to another. Uh, so I became really like, oh, I really, really like this. Mm. 
I like working with the actors. I like the d directors. And it really was hard work because, just like Alice said, you did everything. Yeah. You did the shows. You made the clothes. You were the wardrobe supervisor. You were everything. Mm -hmm. But it felt really, really good. Yeah. I um, love that. And it was almost, for me, I just felt like it really was just meant to be. There was like no doubt in my mind, oh, this is what I'm going to be doing. It was oh, like a light went off. Yeah. Um, I mean, there were other little details in between, but basically that's, that's how it happened. And then the producer of my show also told me, is the one that turned me on to the wardrobe union, saying, you know, you could be doing bigger things. Because you obviously are good at this. Fantastic. Yeah. So I think that's how I got turned on to the union. So I must have done three or four off-Broadway things as like the designer wardrobe supervisor mm -hmm. before I leaped into the really scary, once again, Broadway situation. The bigger stuff, yeah. The big, <laughs> yeah. You know, the big stuff, the big stuff. And we're going we're gonna to yeah. come back to, we'll to, to the union in a second. Um, Rick, how did you join? How did you get into this world? Well, I got in the back door, which was great. Um, like everybody else, did theater all through high school, college, didn't pursue it as a career, always wanted to do it. Fast forward two years out of college, an actor friend of mine got onto a national tour of a show and they were in tech and they discovered they needed a few star dressers and he arranged an interview with the wardrobe supervisor of the show, knowing this is what I wanted to do. I interviewed, got hired on the spot, went back to Boston, quit my day job. I was a manager and buyer for a shoe store in Boston and packed two suitcases and went on the road as the star dresser to the red masked turtle, Raphael, on the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle coming out of the <laughs> Rock and roll arena tour. Oh, Rick, I love you. Because I thought, I was expecting to be like, Yule Brenner in The King of No, but like, and because my, my follow up question was. Red Turtle. Because I was going to be like, what does a star dresser do? And I, I mean, I'm sure we'll get to that with other, all of you, but I mean, I'm sure the duties for the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles was, was something special there. And because we opened at Radio City, um, we all had to be in the union, and none of us were. So our producers were able to buy us into a division of IOTC called ACT. And that's how I started my professional career back in 1989. Fantastic. All right. So our next question is, how would you define the role of a wardrobe supervisor? So why don't we start with Linda? Linda, what, how would you define this? Well, it's, it's a big one because it takes in a, a lot. Um, mm. I would say... You basically are overseeing anything that has to do with costumes. That's shoes, underwear, suits, dresses, hats. You're overseeing the, the maintenance of it. Uh, you're making sure that your designer, that might be number one, is very happy and you're doing what that designer would like for you to do, that you have to represent them well. It's one of the reasons you got that job, because you need to make those clothes look the way they would like them to look. Very important. Um, you take care of all the finances of it. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you must have an incredible crew. The crew is very, very essential. 
Alice, um, what would you say are some of the traits that make a strong wardrobe supervisor? The best one is probably a good sense of who will work together. The hiring of a crew uh, is as a learning experience over the years where you suddenly find out, I really thought they would be good together and boy, are they not. Hmm. Uh, And since I've done a number of shows that ran for a very long time, uh, there's the idea of when you're bringing in new people because someone else has left, how they will fit into what you've got going on or Mm -hmm. where it will be difficult. Uh, Also, strong organizational skills are important because uh, you are in charge of keeping track of all of these bits and pieces. and the bigger the show, of course, the more pieces you have. And uh, at some point, you'll, you'll get to the point where you get to have an assistant. And very often, they will take on part of that. And it would be, and you work very often so much hand-in-hand with your assistants. Uh, but how well you hire, how well you organize, how aware you are of what the designer wants, what is important to them, how much they're willing to be bothered when you're four years down the line, unlike the system in England where they have someone who has been a design associate that becomes the person in charge of the design elements for the entire run Mm. uh, to pay them back for the set designer having made the costume sketches and never done a fitting. Here, very often, the design associates who have been a great source of information during pre-production early are no longer on the payroll, are no longer working on the show, uh, and you become responsible for replacement fittings. Uh, Are we changing fabrics? Can we get the designer's attention long enough to decide if they'll want this fabric? Are you going to have to make the leap of faith in designing and, and pick it yourself. Uh, you know, you, you have to have a certain amount of being aware. Some designers never want to be out of the loop. Some of them would like you to leave them alone. In the long run, they, they have done many, many other projects. They're making movies. They're doing something at the mat. They're, uh, they just really don't want to talk about us anymore. <laughs> And Rick, if you can for us, you know, when we think of Star Dresser, I I think a lot of us think of, you know, Thelma Ritter and All About Eve, and and that's what a Star Dresser does. But how would you define what a Star Dresser does? Well, a lot of it depends on the star. Um, Most stars have people they work with all the time, and sometimes a Star Dresser becomes an assistant also and deals with day-to-day personal things, and a lot of times the star will pay the dresser separately. But basically a star dresser is someone who is exclusive, exclusively with that actor through the performance. Uh, they're there well before the actor gets there to make sure everything is in the dressing room that is needed. Tea, coffee, water, cocktail, whatever they need to get going and get on stage is there. They are there you know, after the show to greet the guests, to help uh, maneuver the guests in and out of the room. Um, it's a, it's a tricky situation. They're also a buffer. Sometimes the actor doesn't want to be bothered by anybody during the show. They're in their, their zone of acting and the dresser acts as a buffer. And mm-hmm. sometimes you don't have to do that. So it's, 
it's very malleable and you have to it sounds be, like a very personal thing too like a very it can be a very personal relationship yeah, it is it is and that's why most stars carry the same person with them all the time because they feel safe and protected mm -hmm. with that person at their side for the performance and they can they can perform and they can do their job and not have to worry about when they come off stage they're they they will get to where they need to go and be safe and taken care of. The three of you have worked with so many costume designers over your career. And um, I'm going to put it in this term. And if you, if you, if you don't want to answer, I totally understand. But for the three of you, what ha have you felt has been the most successful collaboration between you and a specific designer? And why was that collaboration so successful? So we'll start with Rick, if that's okay. Wow. Um, <laughs> You collaborate so well with all of them and every show has its own uh, challenges. One of the biggest challenges I had and one of the, the uh, most successful and happiest I was at the end of the whole collaboration was with Greg Barnes on Aladdin. Um, mm -hmm. That show is gigantic. It's um, over 300 costumes on stage at every performance. Most everything is beaded and hand-painted and a special, unique thing and there are two gigantic quick change sections in the show uh one number has 52 costumes on 19 actors in five minutes and that's right before intermission then right after intermission we have another production number that has 71 costumes on 19 actors in six minutes so it's just a matter of coordinating with the designer his associate and the costume shops to build these things to work together and and make the um, make the quick changes happen. And because there was so much pre-production on the show with uh, Casey Nicola, the director and choreographer with Greg, and they all knew exactly what these numbers were gonna be and who was gonna be doing what within the number. And then we coordinate with the costume shops to make the clothes work before we ever got them into the theater. A lot of times you get costumes that are a finished piece and then they've gotta become a quick rig piece to quick change and take off right. quickly, or they have to fit on top of another costume and you weren't anticipating that. But this show, we knew everything that had to happen and it was all made that way and was delivered that way. And the first time we did both production numbers out of town in Toronto in tech, the first time we did it, we didn't have to stop. Everybody made it on stage in 98% of the pieces. And I just remember- You must have been so like, excited. <laughs> I was, I was kind of a puddle on the floor backstage. And thank God it wasn't both on the same day, but I remember <laughs> the first time Casey said on the God mic saying, well, that was great. Can we do it again? <laughs> I'm like, give, give me 45 minutes. Just, <laughs> just like sitting in piles of costumes yeah. back here. Back to one. Yeah. yeah. What? Like, <laughs> we have to turn 51 costumes right side out. Give me a minute. I love that. And Alice, how about you? What, what have you felt has been a very successful collaboration between yourself uh, and a specific designer? Well, with the, I did a lot of shows with Deanna Aldridge. Uh, my first mm -hmm. off-Broadway show was the show she was doing, and I did a number of productions with her at the Public Theater before Chorus Line happened. And Chorus Line was always special. And then again, I did Dream Girls with her, uh, which are, and in terms of the volume of costumes, you can't get a lot different than a Chorus Line and Dream Girls. And Dream Girls, <laughs> once again, uh, and we, I had done in the interval ballroom, Michael Bennett's second, which is oh, again a wow. huge show um, yeah. with a lot of costume changes in weird times. And, uh, and it was all 
you know, the, the rigging was a whole drama. And, uh, and Theone was, you know, was very, there were so many things about Theone and color. And Theone, but Theone was never one to tell you what she wanted. So it was always, you know, it was a mind reading game. And mm. sometimes it was uh, Theone and Barbara Matera, uh, the mm. late Barbara Matera, who was a wonderful Legend. costume uh, maker. Uh, and who was very often a great deal of what you actually saw on the stage, as is very often the case. Uh, a lot of what the designer puts on the paper really happens because of what they're doing in the shop. They bring a lot of creativity to the shop. The shops bring a lot of creativity. They make a lot of choices. Uh, and very often they've worked so often with designers that uh, they know the direction that they're going. Uh, working with Theone was exciting, uh, always, and uh, that the stuff was really great, and she had really dynamite associate designers. Uh, and I was lucky at that point to be working with uh, Marty Pacladinas was her assistant mm. on, uh, at, at one point, and Susie Benzinger and Frank Krenz, all of whom were remarkable designers in their own right. Uh, and they were a great bridge to Theone's vision. Uh, but there, you know, there are many, I work with now Susan Hilferty, an amazing designer who is much more specific in what she wants, what she draws comes out to be what she's looking for. It's not as vague as it might be with some other designers. Uh, and there are designers where you look at Santa Laquasto, who has an incredible period sense, but he always has a modern edge underneath it. It's never, yes, this is what they really, really wore in 1864, uh, which you sometimes get to with, say, Jane Greenwood, mm -hmm. who is very, very interested with really accurate historical productions. And sometimes I think, just going, this is my chance to do a period they never do on stage the way it really was. And then they have to be hacked about very often to put them into the context of a show that is going to move they all have their particular things that they're really excited about, things yeah. that are really important to them. And sometimes they have revelations in the middle and decide to change it. And Linda, what about you, a successful collaboration that you, that you particularly enjoy? Um, I've had several, but the person that stands out the most, hands down, is Anne Roth. Mm. Um, I love her dearly. We have an incredible connection. Uh, she is very clear about her work. If she's doing film or theater, she understands the job of the wardrobe people. And we collaborate all the time on everything we've ever done together. Uh, she's very clear about what is needed for the production. Some de designers don't have that. They have great ideas on paper, but when it comes to really putting it together and making it function, everyone can't do that. She mm -hmm. is an expert at that. We talk a lot 
about the show, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. And uh, I will totally go out of my way to make things happen for her because she's just brilliant at her job. And she understands the, the full concept of it from every point of view. So I have a lot of respect for her. And she respects all the people that are working at the theater. That's marvelous. I love that. Um, now, for the three of you, can you pinpoint a moment where, as a wardrobe supervisor, you were told, this is what needs to happen, and you thought to yourself, not without a miracle. My God, how how are we going to do this? And 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 maybe you were able to do it. So, Linda, I see you nodding. Can we, can we start with you? Um, I have a very clear moment. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. <laughs> um, it was actually my first production in the union, actually. It was a show called Bubbling Brown Sugar. Um, we were in Chicago. We did not get to New York yet. Uh, there was a white tuxedo in the show for our leading lady, Vivian Reed. Mm. And one of the dressers, not intentionally, put her tuxedo in a dryer. It was polyester. It was beautiful. She put it in the dryer because it was sweating from earlier from a rehearsal. And in the dryer, obviously, was something that had been dyed. Because there were tie-dyed costumes in the show. And um, the dye actually got on the tuxedo. Mm-mm. And um, there I was with the designer, luckily, who was Bernard Johnson, with a white tuxedo that had purple dye all over it that she wore in the finale. Mm-mm. I was horrified, <laughs> absolutely horrified. How was I going to make this tuxedo for the evening? It was for the evening show. We're like at two o'clock in the afternoon. And luckily, the designer um, was totally on my side (laughs) and helped me get through it. At that point in time, I had never built a tuxedo. I never built a tuxedo. Yeah. But he stood by me, and we went step by step. I had the fabric there, and we went step by step by step. She had that tuxedo for the end of the show, and she did not even know that she had a new costume on. Oh, my God. Amazing. I was stunned. <laughs> I was good work. stunned at what you can mm-hmm. do under pressure. I amazing now. I've and never had that ever since then. Nothing has been <laughs> that stressful. <laughs> everything's a walk in the park after that. Right, everything's a walk in the park now, right? <laughs> <laughs> and Rick, Rick, what about you? What about you? Well, we all have the similar. It's you know the afternoon or mid morning, and something's got to happen for that evening. It's all live. Um, <laughs> we were we were in previews for Gypsy, um, and I got a call at ten thirty in the morning that. <laughs> The woman playing Louise Gypsy had lost her voice, and we were barely into previews. The understudy hadn't been rehearsed. We all knew the understudy would not fit into Tammy's costumes. So I said, get Julie to me at noon, and I ran to the fabric district, bought a fabric for the strip gowns. I knew the strip gowns wouldn't work. 
most of the rest of her clothes in the show were boyish sort of clothes and big, so I thought I could make those work. But all the strip gowns had tricks to them. They had to fit like a glove, and Julie was not going to fit into Tammy's clothes. Ran to the fabric district, bought a bunch of fabric, came back, did initial fittings with Julie with what we could fit with Tammy. Associate designer went out to buy finale gown for her, and I just started cutting the four strip gowns, and I had two amazing stitchers who... I still work with all the time. And between the three of us, we made those four strip gowns and all the pieces that had to come off and all the tricks they had to do between 1 p.m. and 10 p.m. that evening. And uh, Julie was great. Her dresser was great. We did a fitting at 4. We did another fitting at 7.30. Did a final fitting at intermission of the show. And literally, me and the two uh, stitchers were running those four costumes to the quick change booth about three minutes before she had to put them on before the strip, the final strip of the show. And it all worked. We went running out front of the Schubert Theater, stood in the back, watched it. Everything worked. And we just kind of collapsed on the ground there. And it was was my favorite moment ever in, in live theater, just making it happen. And Alice, how about you? Uh, I probably have two. One of them was we were in previews for Dreamgirls at the uh, at the Imperial, and like one o'clock in the afternoon, uh, the, the the woman who was dressing Jennifer Holiday came down and said, "Do you have her step into the bad side costume here?" And we're going, "No." Didn't go to the cleaners, wasn't it? It had been stolen from the dressing room. And it was nowhere. I mean, we spent half an hour looking in the building and it was clearly gone. Uh, Security at the Imperial was not great in those days. Um, And we had the understudies costume. And Jennifer is a big girl. And her understudy was completely other size, other shape. Uh, I mean, round and curvy, but easily five inches shorter and not nearly as broad across the back and anywhere else for that matter. And we spent the, we took the understudy step and dress, which had fringe and beads and whatnot all over it, had to get fabric, put inserts from under the arm to the hem on both sides to get it to the point where it would close on Jennifer, who was, of course, not in the building and couldn't have a fitting anyway. And, uh, and then we started beating <laughs> up, the, up the sides and so that because there were three of them the same and she couldn't look wildly different. And it's a number that happens in the first act. And uh, bless his heart, Greg Lillianfeld and uh, a number of my stitchers all together were all over this thing. And we got her, we got it so that it would go on her, that it looked decent on her, and that she didn't look like she had been wandering in with some other boy with these other people. And, but it would, that was, that was very frightening. The other one was the revival of Into the Woods where we had both the milky white cow costume and the uh, and the baker's wife costume had been picked up that morning by the costume shop 
because they were trying to make connections to make some alterations, but mostly to set up stuff for the understudy. And that was the day that was going to Parsons Mears, who were on 17th Street at the time. That was the day Parsons Mears exploded. There was an explosion in the ground floor of their building. And uh, all the elevator stops, and of course, everybody rushed out of the building. The building was closed because the fire department was afraid that, you know, it would fall down or something. And we did not have Milky White the Cow costume. And uh, and we did not have the Baker's Wife costume. And the we decided that the, uh, the second cow that we had, uh, who was not as flexible a cow and not as much of an acting exercise, we'd have to use that costume for Milky White because it was a whole cow head and things, but it was a much less uh, much less Lion King-like costume, <laughs> much, much sturdier, that, you know, with not as much flexibility for the actor. But the baker's wife had no dress, and the understudy had no dress. That was why mm. they had, had it down there so that they could copy. And we rushed, we managed to catch somebody who was shopping for another show on the phone and get them to the fabric wholesaler to get some fabric for... Uh, for the skirt, we had scraps in the in the bot in, in the, for the vest and the bodice. Sally Ann came running up from 17th Street to try and help whack it all together, and we got her on in another dress. And the next day, we had to negotiate with the fire department madly because the building was closed for months. Uh, we had to negotiate with the fire department for two of the firemen to go up and brought back our costumes and uh, a couple of other people's costumes that were also in the shop. Uh, and we had them back for the show then, but getting them on that night was like very bizarre. And we were, we were just in preview. So it was, a, it was a strange and wondrous experience. But once again, everyone pulled together and made it happen. Yeah. When we uh, emailed the three of you and asked uh, if you'd be so kind as to be on this panel, we asked for for some of your credits that we could mention. And I was struck by uh, some of the people that you mentioned, and I would love to discuss them. And Linda, I'd love to start with you, which is you worked on a, a few of the August Wilson uh, decology plays. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and any interaction that you might have had with him? No interaction with August Wilson, but to be... A part of that was phenomenal. Uh, he's a brilliant writer. Um, at the time, it was great because there weren't that many African-American productions happening. So to have that series on Broadway, it was just great for me to be a part of it. All the actors were phenomenal. Just to be in it and just be able to relate to the stories was just great for me. It doesn't happen that often. To this day, it doesn't happen that often. So to be a part of history like that and to be able to understand the stories. I mean, I've been a part of a bunch of shows, but for that in particular, that, that really stands out in my life because it's a part of my life. Yeah. 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 And, and a question then for, the, for, for Rick and Alice is, are there any shows that you do feel um, a personal attachment to the way Linda did with the August Wilson cycle? Where it becomes more than a job, it becomes something 
a part of you? Well, chorus line for certain. Uh, I did I did it at the public theater, and it's almost it's hard for people to realize how much that particular production changed many things in the theater. There, uh, the attitude toward dancers, the idea of dancers at a uh, as people who could actually carry a show, dancers who could talk, for that matter. Right. Uh, I often said, I, I've often said, if if there hadn't been chorus line, there wouldn't have been cats, uh, because nobody really trusted dancers to carry a show. And the whole experience with them was very specific and very personal. And, uh, and moving to Broadway with them and then supervising the touring companies and seeing what happened when it stopped being an experience and became a show. Mm. And the difference that it made to so many audiences who were now looking at something quite different uh, visually and seeing how Theone and Theron Musser and Robin Wagner had pulled together with Michael's idea. I mean, uh, Michael really did not like things that constricted the space. Uh, he never saw it. A, there was never a prop in a Michael Bennett chair unless they were sitting on it <laughs> or saying they didn't need to eat on the table. They didn't have the table. <laughs> and it was very interesting to see when he took a, when uh, he withdrew from chess and Trevor Nunn took over. Suddenly way more scenery got piled on top of what Robin had made for London because Trevor Nunn was clearly uncomfortable with all that space. Michael, Michael's biggest talent was moving people in space where he directed, right? it was amazing to watch mm. uh, where it went with space. It's great to be a part of something like that where it goes so extensively. I mean, Wicked has of course been a great ride and Wicked has, you know, such enormously interesting clothes. Uh, you never get bored with the clothes in Wicked. And it has spoken so directly to and another audience, to, to the very, to the audience, you know, of young women, or very young women, and sometimes little girls, uh, who have found a real voice there. And of course, you have the difference between how people relate to shows then or people who were big fans of A Chorus Line and of Dreamgirls and wanted to see it all the time, all the time, saw each other, you know, would sneak in to go to matinees and they would find each other by standing outside the stage door and develop these intense relationships all about Chorus Line or all about Dreamgirls. And now they find each other internationally on the mm -hmm. web there are people who become massive Wicked fans, never having seen it live, because they're relating to what they see on the internet, what they heard. And it's been fascinating to be a part of that. And I got to do a lot of the foreign language productions of, of, uh, of Wicked. And that's been a fascinating experience. And Rick, how about you? A show that... Um... Uh, you know, you thought it was just going to be a job and, it, and it's meant something, it meant something very personal to you. The biggest part of my career has been with Miss Saigon. Um, it was the very first show I worked on once I got to New York after the Turtles. I moved here to New York and 
shopped my resume around and they were still within the first year of the show. And uh, I was hired as a swing dresser. And not that long after, I ended up as the assistant supervisor to Adelaide Lorino. And um, she nurtured my career at the beginning. And I, I did the whole run of Miss Saigon. Along the way, I went out on the second national tour of Miss Saigon as the supervisor, and was on the road for five years with it. I came back, wow. I did the last year and a half of Miss Saigon on Broadway, and I just did the revival of it. And um, Susie Benzinger, who Alice has spoken of, is the designer. I love this name, kept keep coming up, I love I know, that. Susie's the greatest. And she was involved from day one, the whole, the whole ride of Miss Saigon. And, that, that show created such a deep family and it was a really unique experience. Um, it was just treated so beautifully by all, all, everybody involved, the whole creative team and the cast over the years and over all the tours. Um, so Miss Saigon will remain a, a very, very special part of my life and my career. Um, and I've spent you know, over 10 years with it. Hello, this is Patsy Tavis, not the young one. No, I'm 122 years old, right? But the boys at Behind the Curtain asked me to ask you for some money because, let's face it, I'm quite musical and I was a Broadway baby. So head over to patreon.com, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com, and set up a monthly donation or get your sister Bobby to do it or some assistant. And I would not say no to a pack of smokes. Thank you. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This is a question for the three of you. Do you feel that it was easier to become a wardrobe supervisor when you first started out? Or is it easier to become a wardrobe supervisor now? We'll take COVID out of it, a pre-COVID world, but 2019, 2020. And we'll start with uh, Alice. Alice, would you like to? Well, it was, there were, I mean, Broadway was much diminished when I became, there were a lot of empty theaters. Chorus Line made a big difference to the business of Broadway, as well as a lot of other things. And uh, in this case, I had been working with a lot of off-Broadway off-Broadway, I've been working with a lot of designers who, in their previous lives, like Raoul Penn Dubois and people who never worked off-Broadway, suddenly were doing an off-Broadway show because 
nothing else was happening and they were suddenly in these um, these situations where someone said, well, you should do this. And they were working suddenly with diminished resources and you know different people. But I had worked with a number of big deal designers and, and Miles White, Alvin Colt, uh, all were doing off-Broadway shows, which had not been their thing. And, uh, and some of them, you know, were really very helpful. Uh, and some of them were at sea because they were used to a huge staff and suddenly there wasn't any of that. And a lot of the people that they always used weren't available and so on. And then when I went to the public, I had I did many shows with Fiona. And when it came to the fact that Chorus Line was going to move to Broadway, uh, they were willing to take a stand with the uh, with the uh, with the union that you know they wanted to hire me. And uh, I came to to interview with Frederick Bryant, who was at the time the head of the Border of Union, and I gave her my resume, which was probably one of the first resumes she had ever seen because that wasn't how people got jobs on Broadway before that. And since on there, there were, I had listed you know, the designers I had worked with on the many, and I had, you know, probably 20, 20, I did the effective gamma rays on Man in the Moon Marigolds. I did, I had done a lot of shows with a lot of designers that she had worked with. And I, even more evidently impressive her general managers that she had worked with. And so she was willing to step forward and say, well, what if someone else, and I said, no, you know, I'm going to either be the supervisor or I will continue to work off Broadway. I'm not going to have someone else be the supervisor and me be the assistant. Uh, that has changed over the years. I don't think that path is quite as direct as it might be, partly because the business has changed uh, and partly because people are not coming. I came with a lot of background uh, and I had not really thought about joining the union. I was still doing the law firm in the day and off Broadway at night and um, you know, wandering, you know, daily about going, you know, doing, you know, six different shows a year, which was interesting. I worked on a lot of interesting pieces and I worked with a lot of interesting actors and directors and designers, but, uh, but I would really wanted to go with Chorus Line. And when I got to Broadway with Chorus Line, I had enough experience that I could do it. And Linda, what about you? Um, easier now to get in or easier when you first started out? I think I'm looking at it as easier now. Things have changed a lot since I got in. One of the reasons I was able to get in was because at the time you could dress a star. If the star's name was above the title, that person could have whoever they wanted. Oh, that actually is how I actually got into the union. Um, I was doing a show called Raisin in the Sun. Mm -hmm. uh, a woman by the name of Virginia Capers. Yeah. Star. And I knew the stage manager. Um, and she was looking for a dresser. So I was recommended. 
And I said, yes, I'll do it. Um, I was not a star dresser before that time. And she was great. The show was great. And that actually ha- is how I actually got into the union. Hmm. Um, and after that, things went, I went to Bubbling Brown Sugar and I got that job through a designer, uh, Bernard Johnson. Mm-hmm. And after that, I met Adelaide Lorena, who was like a really big wardrobe supervisor at the time. And she, my show was across the street from her show. What show was she doing then? I'm not sure. I was doing Bubbling Brown Sugar. She was doing a show. And she requested to meet me, which was very nice because it's like, oh, she knew who I was, which is like, yeah, you know. So we met and we um, did very well together. Uh, She has a really big personality, so she could be scary. Very smart, very talented. And we did several shows together after that. Um, I took out the tour, the first national tour of Annie. That's what she was looking for, a supervisor for Annie. Bubbling Brown Sugar was closing, and she was looking for a a wardrobe supervisor for that tour. And um, that actually was the beginning of my touring. I loved touring. So I did many, many tours after that. So I was kind of going back and forth from Broadway to touring, out of the country as well. So that has been a really big perk for me. in terms of people becoming wardrobe supervisors now, I think they have a lot going for them because a lot of them come through programs in their universities um, and they get to experience a lot of things that I did not experience um, in terms of training. I learned a lot of things just like right on the job. You were in the trenches. I was in the trenches and that worked for me. Yeah. But now there are a lot of universities, you can get a degree in theater arts and you get a chance to experience all these things, which is, it's wonderful. Uh, so people actually, dressers come to me actually uh, with some background, they have some idea of what's going on, which is really nice. Uh, but everyone is not a wardrobe supervisor. <laughs> God. <laughs> Everyone is just a few that come through that really could be in those trenches because it really does take over your life. So I think some people do come through thinking that it's like a glamorous job. You have to just love it. It's not glamorous, but you just have to really love it yeah. in order to survive it. And Rick, what about what about you? Well, I honestly don't think it's easy to become a wardrobe supervisor then or now. Um there's a, there's a small, infinite number of shows going on at any given time. And there's a lot of us that are wardrobe supervisors, and we work for either designers or general managers or sometimes both. And we're constantly hired. So we're the first ones to get hired. It's hard to break in. You, um, I have a lot of people coming to me and wanting to, like, they like, I want to become a wardrobe supervisor. And I'll work with them as a dresser. I feel like they're good. I'll, you know, promote them up to be an assistant or you know, cover for when the assistant's out or whatever and just try them out. And I've only found in my 30 years in the business a small handful of people that have the wherewithal, like Linda was talking about, to be a wardrobe supervisor. It's a lot of work and it's you cover a lot of bases. Um, you have to know a lot. You have to know business. You have to know 
design. You have to know how to manage people and, you know, how to satisfy the producer and how to satisfy the designer and how to satisfy your crew and the union. So it's not an easy job. And the jobs are pretty well taken by a lot a small group of us that have been here for a long time. And yeah, mm -hmm. there'll be, there'll be opportunities over the years. And there's been a lot of new younger people come up and they're supervising now, but it's, there's not a lot of jobs and there's a lot of us that are here and want to be here and are staying here. Yeah. Do the three of you rely on each other a little bit? Like Rick, do you ever have a really bad day and call Linda or Alice and go, I don't know what the heck is going on. Can I, can I get some advice? I, I have been waiting for years to meet Linda Lee in person. And this is as close as I get to. Oh. Her in Hi, Rick. <laughs> I love that so much. <laughs> We're all working on our own shows. We all work 80 right. hours a week. We don't see each other. We do 80 you know, hours. We see our crews. I see Alice on the street a lot. Alice is a legend. And I just, I so appreciate Alice. And I, I have an Alice Gilbert story to tell you um, as far as relying on somebody. Every show that opens on Broadway, Alice sends a candy jar full of candy with a card of well wishes from she and her crew. And I've always said, my show can't open until that candy jar arrives on my desk. And, you know, the getting the candy jar from Alice Gilbert is like the gypsy robe for the, the actors. Um, Alice is so respected and admired by everybody in the wardrobe world. And it's, uh, it's always a, a treat to run into Alice at the, the shoe repair store or on the street or at a costume shop and have a nice conversation. So, uh, no, we don't see each other that, that much because we're all involved in our own shows. But we, we do rely on, you know, certain wardrobe supervisors rely on each other. There's a couple wardrobe supervisor friends I have. We, we all like the same sort of dressers. So... When you're looking for a swing dresser, who's like a dresser, I'll call certain wardrobe supervisors and like, I need a really good, strong male swing dresser. Who do you have? You know, mm -hmm. and we all call each other for those reasons. Got it, got it, got it. Are you all at the theater every single performance or are you I, able to? Mostly we are, I think. I certainly am in, uh, I suddenly realized with the lockdown that uh, I have not been in my apartment I, I, because I've been six days, six days and six nights a week in the theater for 17 years uh, on Wicked. And beyond that, I, I suddenly realized that this apartment really is my late husband's apartment uh, because he was in it. <laughs> he was he was retired for 20 years and uh and I'm suddenly trying to make sense of it. And I realize I really haven't been here very much. I've been mm -hmm. in various theaters and various places for the last 45 years. Mm -hmm. And I've been here to sleep and part of one day a week. I, I will say about one of the things that happens with other wardrobe supervisors is yes, you have people you've worked with, people who have dressed for you, who become supervisors, who will call you because they're having one kind of an issue or another. Uh, occasionally I get calls from designers saying I'm looking for a wardrobe supervisor and I'll recommend, you know, a couple of people that I think might work for them. But uh, one of the things is if you really have a crisis, you can call just about anybody. If indeed all the electricity is going out and you can't do the laundry, 
Mm-hmm. You can call somebody and somebody will let you drag it over to their theater and do it in their machines. Uh, there is a solidarity among, you know, that kind of a crisis. Uh, mm-hmm. I've had people going, you know, can I come and use the Mara machine? Can I borrow the Mara machine? <laughs> uh, just because I have, a, over the years, I've accumulated a lot of stuff. <laughs> and uh, people will come and say, can I come and take, and, you know, can I have, you know, I have the, the endless people on Sunday who are showing up looking for elastic sometimes is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, particularly on, uh, particularly shows that have just gone into preview. Right. Where they don't really have stuff. And, <laughs> and so I get, a, I get a fair amount of that. Uh, the endless supply of. Of, of things. And so, Alice, you were on Wicked. Linda, you were on Tina, right? And and Rick, you were doing Moulin Rouge, correct? Right. So what do you do now that you have your days and your nights free? How are you occupying your time? We'll start with Linda. What are you doing, Linda? Oh, I was very tired in the beginning, I have mm-hmm. to say. Um, the musicals are hard. Um, and the older you get, the harder they are, as much as you love them. Um, I was very tired. But at this point in time, I have to honestly say, I'm always trying to figure out what I'm going to do with my time. It's not like there aren't things I can do, but it's like, uh, I can do that tomorrow. You know, everything can be tomorrow now. And um, I, I'm a little concerned, you know, I'm just like, oh, okay, I have to figure this out. What am I going to do? So I'm working on that. I, I do miss the show. I'm really looking forward to it opening up again. I don't know when that'll be, but I, I miss it a lot. When we first thought we had six weeks off initially, I said, okay, get, get a hold of your life. I've been going nonstop for years. I'm like, so I, I did the take everything out of your closet, throw it on your bed and put it back in the closet if it makes you happy. If it doesn't, put it in the bag to take the yes. store when they open again. So I did that. I repainted my whole apartment. I, you know, I just, I went for walks all over the city and just explored the neighborhoods and just took my camera with me. And there's so much great architecture in New York City. I'm taking pictures of buildings and doorways and windows and, you know, the, the flowers on the river and it just, you know, explore the city and enjoy the city that I live in. Cause you know, usually it's from 98th street to the theater district and that's it. So, mm-hmm. um, but I've made to-do lists. I, I make sure I have a to-do list. And I just, so I have goals for the week of get things done. Um, of course, that ran out after the six weeks. So I had to make four to-do lists. And my, my latest is I'm, I'm trying to uh, hone my own computer skills. I got a, got a couple of books on the Microsoft Office suite. I'm like, okay, oh. let's teach ourselves how to do this better. I have faith still. I'm like, let's, let's start this. So... <laughs> I just, I'm just trying to keep my mind active, try to keep my body active, move around and think. And, you know, it's been great to talk to people on the phone that I don't get to talk to. And it's been nice. Nice to have the time, the yeah. gift of time that we don't ever get. How do you I look forward to giving the gift back and letting the theater consume me once again? But it's, it's <laughs> good so far. Oh, we're all wishing that. Now, how do you think that the role of the wardrobe supervisor is going to change once we're allowed back into theaters again? Um, and anyone who wants to start that 
can answer first. I How do don't you really think it's going to change a lot, except you're going to be winding up having to enforce more rules. Okay. Uh, it will be, you know, I mean, those of us who have had at some time or another costumes with that are near flame have always had to deal with the fireproofing protocols and getting somebody certified to do fireproofing. Now it'll be sanitizing. Mm. We'll be spraying something or another on the clothes, I'm sure. There'll be endless territorial arguments about how much space can be between these people when the theaters are only as big as they are. Social distancing is going to be a thing. So everybody will be wearing masks and there'll be arguments about the masks and there'll be people going, I'm not comfortable with that. I think that person is coughing. And I mean, this is, there, there will suddenly be, if that person is a wardrobe person, it's suddenly going to become your problem. Yeah. Uh, you know, are they really coughing? Are they coughing because they have an allergy? Are they coughing because they have something caught in their throat? Or is it a thing? You have your specific, uh, just in the in the way of star dressers. I mean, there are two sort of set of star dresser thing. There are people, there are star dresser positions that exist because the people in leading roles have so many clothes, they really need somebody to help them. And then there are star dressers whose job exists because the person is a star and has the leverage to request a person of their own, even though they have one costume mm. and they're going to spend the night amusing them. Uh, there will be people, uh, they're going to be rearranging dressing rooms and with stage management, that will become a big thing. Uh, it will really depend on where we get so many things with the reopening. And I'm the person who left the candy jar for six on the day we, we closed. Mm. Uh, that don't depend on what the producers are going to do, on what uh, actors are going to do. What, they depend on what the government is going to do and ultimately what audiences feel comfortable about doing. And uh, so I'm, I miss the show desperately. Mm. Uh, but I have, and I miss all those interactions. Uh, but I don't, I... I don't say, you know, if the producers were really on it, they would get us open again because they really don't have the control. It's when will the government allow you to have a thousand people, 2000 people inside? Will an audience decide that they want to come and spend the money mm -hmm. uh, because there have been economic consequences of this? Uh, will they feel safe going into a theater? Uh, and will there be an economic model that will mean that they can indeed reopen yeah and, uh, and linda and rick do you concur with what alice is saying um yes i, I totally do uh, i think a lot of the decisions about what will happen are over our heads really we have to come into a situation that is pretty much set and if that's not set it's, it's not going to work people are not going to work and that's including actors crew um, things have to be a certain way. And those decisions shouldn't be made by us. We can come in ready to do our job, but mm. we do know the backstage cannot be the backstage that we knew before March 12th when the show's mm. closed. 
that just can't exist because it's, it's not healthy. Yeah. Um, so all of that has to be um, decided upon before we arrive at the theater. Because if that's not taken care of, people are not going to work. Rick, same? Yes, kind of the same, yeah. Uh, and th that's the big reason we're not back to work right now is because we can't socially distance at work. The theaters are small. We're on top of each other backstage. The audience is sitting on top of each other out front. The theater is put together with the model of selling every seat in order to make a profit. So we'll be one of the last industries to go back to work in the theater. But I also think it'll be safer for us to be back at work for those reasons. Um, there will be differences backstage. We don't know what those are yet till next year when we're going when we're going back in. But one of my two of my biggest hopes, and I think it'll uh, come true, is better ventilation backstage. The backstages are do not have good air circulation, and I I think a lot of theaters right now are installing because they're empty and construction can happen in New York. I think a lot of theaters are installing better ventilations in the hallways, in the basements, in the dressing rooms. So we'll have a safer work environment and a cleaner work environment and there'll be better filtration going on. Um, I also am hoping that Actors' Equity really puts its foot down and pushes hard to make sure that there's no shared costumes. Quite often, the understudies and swings don't have a full complement of clothes and we have to share the principal's clothes and the ensemble's clothes with the swings and the understudies. And that requires alterations and cleaning. And it's not always, you're not always able to clean the clothes in between somebody else wearing it. So I'm hoping that with COVID that the equity will finally put down its foot hard and say, no, everybody has to have their own clothes. Every swing, every understudy has to have their own set. And there's no sharing of costumes, which will make our lives a lot easier. Because sometimes it's mid-show and an understudy is going on and you're doing alterations on costumes to make them fit for the rest of the show. And then you're trying to get them cleaned. You're calling the cleaner up. Say, can you come tonight? I've got to pick up these clothes and get them cleaned for me. So I'm hoping we have better ventilation and we get a better set of clothes in the building for ourselves to use. I I like that. So our last question for for the three of you is: you the three of you have had these amazing careers. Alice, you've been honored with a Tony Award for for your incredible work in this field. What do you know now? that you wished you would have known when you were first starting out? If you could go back and talk to young Rick and young Linda and young Alice right at the beginnings of their career, what would you give them? What piece of advice would you give them? And we'll start with uh, Rick. Hmm, what advice would I give myself? Uh, don't be afraid to make a decision and always, 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 always keep your mind open to learning, which I, I've always done. It's nothing that I would it be new advice, but uh, I've definitely learned a lot over the years just by shutting up and listening and paying attention uh, to my superiors, to my producers, to my general managers, to my designers, to the supervisors I was working with. I've learned from other supervisors how I like to supervise and how I would and things I wouldn't do. And you know, it's just keep your eyes and ears open and always be willing to learn and grow and never stop. Amazing. And Linda, how about you? Um, I agree with Rick 100%. You have to be open to learning. Um, because I think sometimes when you're younger, you're afraid that you're not appearing to be as knowledgeable as you want to be uh, in any field. Um, but just be open to learning from everybody. I learned from the dressers. There is not one show that I've ever been on that I didn't learn something from somebody. 
And not to mention, each show is different. They're the same, and you take your knowledge to the next show. But I learned something on every single show. And now there are so many technical things. You almost really just have to keep up with it. There's all kinds of technical things that are happening now with the costumes. So just stay open to learning. You can learn from anybody. Oh, the tech people know a lot. Your designers know a lot. Your crew knows a lot. So um, I agree with Rick with that. Thank you, Linda. And Alice, last word from you, Alice. Well, once again, it is very important to be able to learn from everyone else. But also, uh, because I have stitchers, I have people with techniques, but I also find it's important to not undervalue the the, the shops. The, The things the shops do and how they do them have been very, very valuable to uh, I've learned many things in, in hanging in costume shops and in fittings in costume shops. You learn a lot. And always, always, always be very careful picking your crew. You're going to rely on them. You're going to need them. And the range of talents that's available to you is really amazing. Thank you so much. A big thank you to the three of you for for taking so much time and talking to us today. And a big thank you to Patricia White, who's president of the Theatrical Wardrobe Union, who helped coordinate all of this and got this off the ground. It's been an absolute pleasure getting to learn so much about what goes on backstage. The three of you are geniuses, and we thank you so much, and we can't wait to see you all in the theater again. Thank you. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Pleasure. Thank you. Till next time. Take care. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And a big thanks to the punchy players, Jeff Marquis, who is bringing back Lucy, Betty, Judy, and Morda shill for us. And a big thanks to our sound editor, Daniel Schwartzberg, and social media manager, Bethany Ann Selecki. And don't forget, we want more folks to hear these incredible stories, and that's where you come in. In order for people to find out about us, we need lots of ratings on iTunes. So head on over to iTunes, search for Behind the Curtain, Broadway's Living Legends, click on our logo, click on ratings and reviews, then write a review and leave us five stars and make us feel as special as Eliza Doolittle on Eliza Doolittle Day. Or you can leave us just one star and you can make us feel as baddie, baddie, bad as Annie did in that really weird production in Boston where Annie dreamt that she was being adopted, but then she ended up back in the orphanage, right back where she started. Yeah, true story. Rob saw it. Yes, and it was batty. It was bizarre. I was there. I was. Oh, God. So head on over to iTunes and make us feel even more special than we already do. Patrick Flynn. What? Beth Amon. I hate this movie. Love Actually? Yes. Me too. But I also love it. Me too. But I hate it. You know what we should do? What? We should get a bunch of people together, split the movie into its 10 storylines, and then figure out this movie one story at a time. You mean people like Keith Powell and Jill Knox Powell from NBC's Connecting? Keith, why don't you show us what porn watching faces? And Washington Post columnist Alexandra Petri? I don't know. I think every Christmas story is a horror story. Do you think it would work? It actually inspired me to plan my funeral. I dig the uh, brothel angle. Every time I think about the trailer, I'm like, I was misled. I love your use of the word shag, by the way. Can I mix your ashes with glitter? It's like eight half screenplays just 
put in a blender. I am positive I stayed with my ex an extra six months because we saw this in the theater. It will definitely work. What is Love Actually? Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download. All episodes out November 27th. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.